You'll notice in your program today that the title of today's sermon is 14 Generations. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I read through the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Are you still with me? Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I'm going to ask Rebecca now to come up. <laughs> My husband told me, just say it confidently and no one will notice anything. It was perfect. So perfect, Helen. Thank you so much. That's a tough, tough call there. Lots of biblical names. So good morning, everyone, and a warm welcome this first Sunday of the Advent season in December. It doesn't feel like it may be exactly out there, but I've got a little bit of a breeze coming in here at the front. <laughs> so I do have a question for you. Did you ever have a perfect December? One that you remember being as your very, very favorite, maybe way back in your childhood, maybe a little more recently. I don't know. Take a moment to think if you ever had a perfect one. So hands down, the best one of our family so far yet, still in the making, was December 2010. And the reason for that is very cute. Our youngest son, Miles, was born at the very tail end of November, the start of the winter season. And he was just less than two weeks old when December started. And we already had the baby supplies in our house that we ever would have needed. We had two older brothers. So we sort of spent those months getting ready for the Christmas season and eating a lot of cookies. So when friends came to meet the baby, they would say, do you need anything? Do you need anything for the baby? And Ginny always said, oh, just some baking would be good. This baby really needs some baking. <laughs> so we were the most organized we had ever been and had ever been since 
Friends and family all came to visit in-house, and so we hardly even had to go anywhere. The only thing we had to do that December was snuggle a tiny little baby. So for all of you with new November, December babies, I know there's a few of them, quite a few of them in this church um, this season. Take heart, enjoy the baking, and don't be afraid to eat cookies in the middle of the night. I did. It was great. (laughs) Another December that I remember comes a couple years after that perfect one. I remember it very clearly. After we had put up our Christmas tree on the Saturday afternoon, that evening I had gone downstairs after the boys went to bed just to get a head start on wrapping some gifts and putting things in order under the tree. So I had picked up one of our gifts to be wrapped, which was a book, and I opened the front cover just to take a peek inside. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked inside of a book that you were planning to give to someone else? It's really hard for me not to peek. And once you've opened the cover, soon enough, you're into the table of contents, and then the first chapter, and once you've read the first chapter, well, then you need to see how the story keeps going and going, and then you can't just put it down in the middle. You have to see how it all ends. And the chances are, if I've ever given you a book as a gift, I've probably read it first. Well, that exact thing happened that December evening under the tree. So before I knew it, I had read the whole book. And the book that I was meant to be wrapping and not reading late that night was actually the Bible. This one that I have in my hand, it's a children's Bible. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. And as I read that book that night, something happened in my heart. It may have been compounded by the twinkling of the lights on the Christmas tree as I was sitting underneath it, or the snow outside, or the rare, rare sound of three young sons sleeping upstairs. But my heart stirred that night, and for the first time, I saw the beauty of this whole story from beginning to middle to end. So Jindy tiptoed downstairs a while later, and he found me sitting beside this twinkling Christmas tree with tears just streaming down my cheeks. I thought you were wrapping presents, he asked. I wondered why you hadn't come up. It was really late by this time. Remember, it was the whole Bible. I've never read the whole thing before. That's a confession. I've never read the whole thing before. The whole story, the whole Bible. I tried to explain to him, it's so beautiful, it's so hopeful. The truth is, it had been a really hard year for us that year, and we desperately needed some hope, lots of it. We were waiting for change to come, and my heart was open to hear the story a little differently. So that year, that night, I saw the great story in a brand new light. The next day was Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, where we find ourselves again today. That year, we began our family tradition of reading through the same children's Bible during the Advent season each year. And then we read through the Old Testament, the promises made, the promises broken by us, the hope given, and the hope shattered by us, the dreams given, and the dreams waiting to be fulfilled. Lots of waiting and more waiting. Unfinished business, so to speak. 
unredeemed, and very, very much unresolved. We end our Advent reading on December 24th, but I'm not going to tell you the end of the story today. That's a surprise. You'll need to keep coming all December here to hear the story all the way through. So that's exactly where we're going this month, through the four gospel books. We're going to hear from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and how they each introduce us to the Messiah in their own way. We'll be reading through the start of a different gospel each week. And today's gospel reading that Helen so expertly pronounced is from the very first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. Matthew starts at the record, the family genealogy of Jesus Christ. And he was writing to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah, who is the anointed savior of Jesus and the world. Matthew, as a writer, really likes numbers and systematic thinking. His profession is actually a tax collector. So think CRA worker here. In Matthew chapter 9, we hear a little bit more about Matthew's actual introduction to Jesus. So picture this. He's writing the book of Matthew himself about the, introducing the character of Jesus. But he's also writing about himself and how he meets Jesus in that perspective. So the calling of Matthew from Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. So Matthew got up and followed him. That was it. He just got up. He assumingly left his post, his vocation, his booth, and he just followed Jesus after two words. Just a simple invitation. We can maybe imply that here that he had some current job dissatisfaction to leave his life so quickly. Or maybe he had heard some rumors about this Jesus character and he wanted to see for himself. Or like many of us, perhaps he had this restlessness and this hunger for something more, something a little deeper. We don't really know why he answered this invitation as quickly as he did, but what the scriptures do clearly state is that he essentially got up and got out of there. He immediately responded to Jesus's invitation. And then he went on to offer Jesus dinner together, shawarma, my house, let's go. So while Jesus was over having dinner at Matthew's house, many other tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. What we guess that happened here was that Matthew brought this honored guest, Jesus, home and he wanted his friends to meet him. So he invited his work colleagues, who were other tax collectors, over for dinner. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Kind of essentially, what's up with that? Questionable characters. It's an insult, because the Pharisees are basically asking, why on earth is Jesus having dinner at Matthew's house in the first place? And with his workmates, they are unfit for good company. On hearing this, Jesus answered, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteousness, but to call sinners. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament here. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's actually from the book of Hosea. And in fact, the writer Matthew quotes the Old Testament 61 times in about 28 chapters. 
That's about two times per chapter. Much of Matthew's gospel writing is about reaching back. And as Matthew names the 14 generations, he means to give the impression of intention that history was longing for Christ's arrival from the initial call of Abraham to the heights of David's reign, right down through the lowest and darkest points of Israel's exile and into the present day of Matthew's world, where he's writing at the current time. Matthew clearly started off his gospel with the family genealogy this way for a reason. He was writing to a Jewish audience, and his primary concern was revealing Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited king. And the very fact that Matthew does not begin with Jesus' birth, but reaches back further to establish his roots, gives credibility to his claim. If Jesus is going to be accepted by the Jewish people as the Messiah, his ancestors really need to line up, so to speak. As any student of history knows, a king cannot simply declare themselves as king. They must belong to a royal line to back that up. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage to the founding father of the Jewish race, Abraham, who first received the promise of the Messiah, and then forward to the great Jewish king David. Verse 17 states, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Back in history, 2,000-some years ago, there was a deep longing among God's people, a restlessness. They had a long, documented, troublesome history of living in anticipation, hoping for something better. We think of ourselves now, in this month of December, and the waiting period of about three and a half to four weeks through the Advent season, it's a short wait, really, compared to 400 years, which is the approximate period that separates the time of the writing of Nehemiah to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Old and the New Testament. And yet there is a bigger, much bigger underlying longing in our lives today, and that's for Christ's eventual return. On that, we're still waiting Matthew's genealogy names Abraham, David, and ends with the Jewish people in exile. And each of these eras is loaded with promises, which kept the Israelites looking forward and moving towards something better. From Abraham to the formation of a nation that would become a blessing to the world. And for David to a kingdom that would never end. And in the exile, the promise of a return to their homeland after being exiled in Babylon. And in the final, the crescendo, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of who was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Christ here sounds like a last name to us, but it means Messiah or anointed one. And this is the one, the person that Israel has been longing for all along. But yet, can they see it? Do they recognize it? It's really hard for us to know. The promise wasn't actually for a nation or a kingdom or a return even to the homeland like the Jewish people may have been waiting for or expecting. The promise was for true freedom that could only be found in Jesus Christ. Matthew's audience would not have understood this concept yet. But here and now we have the benefit of hindsight in our favor. From 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11, concerning this salvation, the prophet's, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, 
They searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Jesus Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And there's another scripture here, a reference from Paul's letter to the Galatians in 4.4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. This is the time. It's the time that has fully come. Luke 24, verse 27 reads, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Essentially, Jesus had been talked about the whole Bible, but he hadn't been recognized. The Jewish people would not have known that or seen that. This explanation that Jesus gave about Moses and all the prophets was provided by Jesus later on during the last days of his life, just before ascension. But the people in Matthew's era living at that time period of history, it was just unfolding. They didn't have access to the knowledge, the greater context of Jesus and his life and his message. They were stuck in a little bit of in belief and doubt. Their understanding was limited to their experience, as ours is, and their access at that time of Old Testament scriptures. So only when Jesus arrived, announced on the scene, did they begin to glimpse that maybe he was the one that they had in fact been waiting for all along. I really see the beauty of simplicity here. As Matthew points back towards the foundations of the old scriptures that lead towards the new. The here and the now of Matthew's day and time. I do believe that because we have a different viewpoint here, it's important to recognize and celebrate it. The importance of the Old Testament is key. And Matthew's historical opening chapter and list of family genealogy acknowledges this history by, as he begins his chapter, and the whole New Testament by looking all the way backwards. The Gospel of Luke, a little later on, also provides an account of the genealogy of Jesus. Although Luke flips the order, and he starts with Jesus, the son of Joseph, and Luke reaches back even further in time, past Abraham, the founding father of the Jewish nation, to encapsulate Noah of Noah and the Great Flood, and then back to Seth, the son of Adam, and then Adam, the son of God. So Luke's genealogy reaches all the way back to creation. He's taking us all the way back to Genesis there. In fact, I would challenge us to say that we can look back and find reflections and signs of Jesus all throughout history. Author Lauren Cunningham captures these historical glimpses of Jesus beautifully in his work, the book that transforms nations. He writes, in Genesis, Jesus is our creator. And in Exodus, he is our liberator. In Leviticus, Jesus shows himself as our high priest and the rule maker. And in case you haven't guessed yet, I'm going all the way through the Old Testament here. In Numbers, Jesus is a good spy of numbers. And in Deuteronomy, he is the lawgiver. In Joshua, Jesus is the conqueror who broke down the walls, remember? And in Judges, he is the righteous judge. In Ruth, he shows himself as the kinsman redeemer. That's a great story. In First and Second Samuel, Jesus is the second David greater than the first David, king. 
And in First and Second Kings, Jesus is the king of all kings. In First and Second Chronicles, he keeps the record, even writing our own names in the Lamb's Book of Life. And in Ezra, the book of Ezra, he rebuilds the temple, including our temple, our body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Nehemiah, he rebuilds the walls of protection when they have been torn down. And in Esther, he saves us. In the book of Esther, just as the king gave the edict for his people to be saved, there's redemption there. In Job, I know my Redeemer liveth. And in 42.10, he gives back double for the trouble that Job received. In Psalms, Jesus is the object of our worship. And in Proverbs, he is the wisdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the great preacher. And in Song of Solomon, the lover of our souls. In Isaiah, Jesus is the king high and lifted up. His train fills the temple, as well as showing himself as a suffering servant. And in Jeremiah, he is the weeping prophet who gives the word, and the people do not listen. In Lamentations, he is the tears of God. And in Ezekiel, he is the promised one before whom Ezekiel lay. In Daniel, he is weighed in the balance and not found wanting. And Jesus is the fourth man in the fiery furnace who does not get burned. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband to an unfaithful bride, the bride of Christ, as we are often unfaithful. And in Joel, he is the latter rain revival. In Amos, he shows himself as the cascading justice of God. And in Obadiah, he is the judge of the nations. In Jonah, he is the God of second chances. Haven't you ever wanted a second chance? This guy? <laughs> in Micah, he does justice and he loves mercy. And he walks humbly with God. And in Micah 5.2, it says of Jesus, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. In Nahum, he is the wrath of God, the lion of God, and the lamb of God, all at the same time. And in Habakkuk, he is the vision that we write and make it plain, the evident of the glory of God, of which will the knowledge of which will cover the earth as the waters cover over the seas. In Zephaniah, it says that Jesus sings over us with joy. He will rejoice over you with singing, like one of our worship songs spoke of today. And in Haggai, he is the latter glory greater than the former glory, the shaker of the nations and the rock that cannot be shaken. In Zechariah, he cleanses the robes of the high priest, not by your might and power, but by God's spirit, says the Lord. And in Malachi, Jesus brings the generations together. In Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah. And that's how he's introduced in this very first book of the Old Testament. So in Advent then, as we find ourselves now, we play the role of the Israelites. We embody their longing and their anticipation. But we also play our own roles, celebrating the great answer to all of God's promises in Christ's arrival and his ongoing presence with us by his spirit. My question for you is how do we begin this Advent, this beginning, the start of Advent, by looking back, all the way back, back further? There's a slide here for creation, and I'm going to read to you a little bit from, yes, a children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible that we started off talking about today. This um, expert is from Genesis, 
the very beginning. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. And when they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. And God loved them with all of his heart. And they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind in the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who had made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness, and nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God looked at everything he had made. Perfect, he said, and it was. But all the stars and the mountains and the oceans and the galaxies and everything were nothing compared to how much God loved his children. He would move heaven and earth to be near them, always. And whatever happened, whatever it cost him, he would always love them. And so it was that the wonderful love story began. So my question I want to leave you with today is how do we begin Advent by looking back? Not only in our own lives, but looking back to when God created us, that purpose and what that was for, and coming all the way full circle to when Jesus came. We're trying to make this connection from the old to the new, from hope longing to hope fulfilled. And we're going to take that journey um, along with us, along with you guys this month. Thank you so much. I've taken up enough of your time here today. And what we do after the service is we dismiss to discussion groups, which are over in the gym just behind me here. So if you've never been here before, you can grab a seat to the table, help yourself to some snacks, um, grab a hot drink, and sit around the table to join in discussion questions about the sermon today. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I'll just pray to dismiss you. If you don't mind standing up, that would be great. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for bringing us here together at the start of this Advent season. And thank you for the hope that we can have um, in your gospel just to look all the way back to the start of your creation um, and help us walk through this Advent season and let it just be a time of remembrance, of looking back um, and looking forward at the same time. Thank you for the hope that you give us in your creation of us. In your name we pray. Amen.